season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. My campaign will now give a freedom dividend of $1,000 a month for an entire year to 10 American families. I don't know if you remember this guy. His name is Andrew Yang, and he was one of the contenders to be the Democratic candidate to take on Donald Trump in the 2020 US presidential elections. Actually, he's back all over the American media at the moment because he's running for New York mayor now. But one of the things that made Andrew Yang stand out from a crowded Democratic field in the primaries was because of that announcement we just played. In September 2019, Andrew Yang announced that he would be giving away free money for a year to 10 American families. He called it the Freedom Dividend, which is quite a pukey name for a concept more people know as a basic income grant. Now, giving people free money might seem like the preserve of the radical left, but it's really not. Andrew Yang himself is anything but a radical lefty. He's a tech entrepreneur, and the rest of his politics are libertarian, bordering on conservative for a Democrat. In fact, the idea of a basic income grant is something that has the ability to win approval from across the political spectrum. It also just might be the key to lifting millions of South Africans out of poverty and despair. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In our third season, we're looking for solutions to South Africa's biggest problems. And in this episode, the challenge we're considering is one of the biggest of them all, poverty. We're asking, could the answer be as simple as just giving people money? I'm your host, Rebecca Davis. want to hear something darkly funny in the way that a lot of things in South Africa are darkly funny? We're not sure how many people in this country are living in poverty because Stats SA doesn't have enough money at the moment to do an up-to-date poverty survey. Poverty in South Africa seems to be all around us in terms of the fact that we all see people begging at traffic lights, people living on the streets, and people living in very deprived conditions. But Poverty isn't just some impressionistic vibe. There are specific benchmarks for what constitutes being poor. Last year, StatsSA released a report estimating that around 6 out of 10 South African children are what they call multidimensionally poor, which means they're deprived of access to at least three of the following seven aspects. That's health, housing, nutrition, protection, education, information, and water and sanitation. StatsSA has another, more quantifiable metric for poverty, which they call the National Poverty Line. The Food Poverty Line is the absolute minimum amount of money that can be spent to ensure an individual gets the minimum required daily nutrition. As of 2020, that amount was 585 rand per person per month. About 25% of the total population is estimated to be living below the Food Poverty Line. But that was before COVID, and as mentioned, we don't have up-to-date figures. 
585 Rand per month is not a lot, but it is more than the child support grant given out by government to those in need. That amount is 460 Rand per month, meaning that by government's own calculations, it is not giving parents even the bare minimum amount necessary to sustain a child's bare minimum nutritional needs. For those in this country fortunate enough to have jobs, and as we'll discuss in a minute, that's a rapidly dwindling cohort, that in itself is not a guarantee of financial security either. I called labor lawyer Jan Truter to ask him about South Africa's minimum wages, all of which had fractional increases as of February 2021. I wanted to know, do our minimum wages constitute a living wage? It's a wage that a person reasonably requires to live, not comfortably, but just slightly higher than survival level. And that's a tricky question. Um, And that is not always reflected in the minimum wage because you get different minimum wage levels depending on the sector that you're dealing with. Jan told me that the lowest minimum wage in South Africa is actually paid by government. It's the government's own expanded public works program, which gives temporary jobs normally around infrastructure projects. The people working on expanded public works are significantly below the national minimum wage. They are at 11 rand 93 per hour, whereas the national minimum wage is at 21 rand 69. In South Africa, the maximum working time allowed is 45 hours weekly. Assuming you're in full-time employment, which is a hell of an assumption, and you're getting paid the national minimum wage, the maximum amount you're taking home per month is around 3,900 rand. And this relatively fortunate state of affairs, being in permanent full-time employment, applies to a significant minority of the population. As of December 2020, and these are stats SA figures again, there were just over 39 million South Africans aged between 15 and 64 years old, of which just over 15 million were classified as employed. If you really want to get depressed about this, you should spend a few minutes talking to WITS professor Vishwas Satkar. We know that with the latest data that we've got out, we are sitting at a 32% unemployment rate with the narrow definition. With the extended definition, we're looking at 42%. That's almost 11 million people. But that number doesn't also take into account long-term unemployment in our society. So at least since 2009 to 2019, from the data we have, you also have about 5 million long-term unemployed people in our country. And that number, I think, has jumped up since COVID um, and will continue. So on the one hand, you have an economy that is not job-creating, even in the context of cycles of growth. On the other hand, you have an absolutely precarious and poor working population in this country. So in other words, you know, almost 30 million or more people earn below the upper bounded poverty line, which is about 1,286. So you have an unviable society in terms of how people have to struggle to survive. Professor Satgar's description of South Africa as an unviable society, that really stuck with me. But what it suggests most starkly is that in a time as precarious as this, the moment has come for daring ideas. 
We'll be back after the break. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing, or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91. Investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. I started this episode talking about Andrew Yang, the Democratic candidate who paid 10 families his so-called freedom dividend for a year. Here's Yang again, explaining why he made this idea the central pillar of his political campaign. This clip is from the American talk show The View, and Yang is being grilled by Joy Behar. You are also proposing something of a basic universal income, a freedom dividend, That's right. you call it. What does that mean exactly? So this is an idea that's been with America since our founding. Thomas Paine was for it. Martin Luther King championed it in 1967. Uh, it's a dividend for every American as a rate of citizenship. So under my plan, every American adult would receive $1,000 a month starting at age 18 every month uh, until you, you expire. What? Yes. Yeah. That will cost $3, million, $3 trillion. Where's this money coming from? Uh, so and what is the point of it, really? They say if you give a man a fish, if you give a man a fishing line, he can fish. If you give him one fish, he'll just eat that fish, something like that. <laughs> I think how I know the saying you're talking but about. But how does it go? You know that one? Yeah. So you hand somebody $1,000. What good is that? They spend the thousand big deal. though, for people that are struggling. I know it's a bit of a game changer, but it's not a long-term solution. Come on. It actually uh, would help build a more human-centered economy, what I call the trickle-up economy, because it would allow more people to do the kind of work that they want to do, including yeah. people like my wife, who's at home with our two young boys, one of whom is autistic. And right now, the market values her work at zero. Yeah. GDP values her work at zero. If you start putting resources into our hands, it actually expands what we think of yeah. as work. Well, now you're talking about paying women for doing housework and doing work at home, being mothers. That's a good idea. That is a good idea. Oh, good. That's different. No, no, it, That's it's different. Well, I mean, again, and, and this is... <laughs> this is a game changer for the waitress at the diner who's getting yeah. harassed by her boss. It's a game yeah. changer for the single mom who's stuck in an abusive relationship. Yes. Like, we need to put the economic uh, resources into people's hands to be able to improve their but situation. But still, how are you going to pay so, for this exactly? Yang goes on to explain that he proposes to fund this idea by taxing the profits of massive tech companies, who he calls the biggest winners of the 21st century economy. Apple, Netflix, Google, Amazon, and so on. Now, in preparation for this episode, I watched a lot of Andrew Yang videos, and I have to say he is not amazing at explaining the concept of a basic income grant. But maybe that's because he has to do it in a way that's not too scary or radical for American voters, or because he has to pander to particular groups of voters. In the case of The View, to the women watching at home. But the concept is actually not at all difficult to explain, because it is literally free money. The Basic Income Grant, which is also called the Universal Basic Income Grant, or UBI, is a fixed amount of money given to every adult. In most proposals, it would not be means-tested, which is to say absolutely everybody would be eligible for it, whether you are poor or rich. This might seem wasteful, but one of its appeals is that it would require relatively little bureaucracy to implement. Everyone gets it, that's it, nobody has to apply for it. And the idea is also that the rich will recirculate the money into the system as they spend it. 
You can do with that money whatever you want. There are no conditions attached to how you spend it. And this is actually a really important part of it because skeptics tend to assume that people can't be trusted with free money and will run off immediately to spend it on booze or drugs. But time and again, research has shown that people in need who are given free money use it in really constructive ways. One of the most dramatic demonstrations of this was from a 2010 study where researchers deliberately sought out drug addicts and criminals in Liberia to give $200 cash payments to and found that overwhelmingly, the money went on subsistence and setting up legitimate business. These findings have been repeated over and over again. Professor Satgar is one of the leading campaigners for a basic income grant in South Africa. And I wanted to know from him, how well do we think it might work in terms of pulling people out of poverty in this country? The evidence is startling and it's actually very, very uh, powerful. There have been experiments in different parts of the world. Actually, in the 70s in the United States and parts of Canada, there were attempts uh, at experimenting with basic income grants in local communities. More recently, we've had specifically designed experiments in Namibia, something similar going on in Kenya. The evidence is overwhelming in terms of positive social effects. Of course, each of these experiments have been designed with particular target groups in mind, particular levels of income, and so on. But the evidence that's coming out is showing direct impacts on poverty immediately. It's showing impacts on food and ensuring that people are escaping hunger traps. There's direct impact on asset formation. There's direct impacts on the psychology of people in terms of being confident enough to think about other options. People have invested in education in many of these experiments to enhance themselves and their lives. And generally, you are seeing human flourishing in terms of evidence that we have available. Andrew Yang's unsuccessful campaign brought the concept of a basic income grant into the spotlight in the United States and elsewhere. The Pope even mentioned it in his Easter address last year. But in South Africa, the idea has been brewing for literally decades. This particular moment, though, seems ripe for the concept to be taken up for reasons Professor Satkar explains. So in the early 2000s, we had the first expression of this idea with the Taylor Commission and there was a universal basic income coalition, etc. But of course, it didn't land and it didn't gain traction. And our government chose a social grant approach. Although initially, the Minister of Finance felt, well, it's going to bankrupt the country. I think we are in a historic moment where we have to grapple with the question, what does society need right now? We are a country that has come out of the trauma of looting and the hollowing out and weakening of our democracy under the ANC-led Zuma regime. We are in the midst of a worsening recession. We are being impacted by our drought, which still hasn't ended in parts of the Eastern Cape, and we've had now cyclonic impacts, etc. So there is definitely a reality out there that is registering the deep suffering of the people in this country. The data, as I've been referencing in this conversation on unemployment, I mean, 42%. In, in, in 2001, a 19% unemployment rate in Argentina brought down four governments. The ANC government is clearly aware of all this. 
President Cyril Ramaphosa said in January that the party was seriously considering the introduction of a basic income grant. If you're wondering about the practicalities of all of this, there are quite a few different proposals being thrown around and thinkers are working through ideas about how the basic income grant would mesh with the existing social welfare system in this country, whether it would replace it or be implemented side by side with some grants. In 2020, the Black Sash NGO released a report calling on government to provide a basic income grant of 1,227 rand a month. That's the upper bound poverty line, so the amount that allows you to afford bare minimum of food and household items. They wanted that paid to every individual aged between 18 and 59 in the country. Those older would be covered by pensions or the existing old age grant. The South African Federation of Trade Unions, meanwhile, has urged government to introduce a basic income grant of at least 1,500 rand a month, while the ANC itself, according to leaked documents, has been looking at a monthly grant of 500 rand to those aged 19 to 59 who don't receive other grants. That would cost, it's estimated, around 200 billion rand a year. The 200 billion rand question is where would we find the money? Professor Satgar says, actually, there's quite a lot of options. Progressive taxation, cutting the size of cabinet, cracking down on illicit currency flows, higher corporate taxes, and of course, stemming the river of money being lost to corruption. Easier said than done, perhaps. There's another aspect I haven't touched on yet. And that's that some theorists believe that in the not-too-distant future, governments around the world, regardless of their politics or economic ideologies, will have no choice but to pay out some kind of universal grant. And when you look back in history, people constantly compare the threat of automation and job loss in the 21st century to what happened in the 20th century. In the 20th century, you saw automation in agriculture, so lots of unemployed farm workers moved to working in industry. And then when automation reached the industries, uh, they moved to working as cashiers in, at Walmart. But in those cases, what happened was that people lost low-skilled jobs and transferred to other low-skilled jobs. Moving from being an agricultural worker to uh, working in some car factory in Detroit you moved from one low-skilled job to another low-skilled job. When you lost your job at the Detroit car factory and got a new job as a cashier at Walmart, again, you moved from a low-skilled job to a low-skilled job. But the next stage, if, what, if, if, if the next stage means I'm losing my job at 45 as a cashier at Walmart, and now there is an opening as a software engineer at Google designing virtual worlds, this is going to be much more difficult than moving from the car factory to, the, to Walmart. And it's very likely that even if there are new jobs, most of the unemployed masses will not be able to make the transition. It's also a big question about, about young people that nobody really knows what the job market would be like in 20 or 30 years. It's really the first time in history that nobody has any idea what kind of jobs and what kind of skills people will need in 30 years. That is the wildly popular Israeli author Yuval Harari, 
addressing the Carnegie Council for Ethics in International Affairs in 2017. Harari is certainly not the first thinker to make this point, but he has made it in a particularly bleak and compelling way that increasing automation is going to leave potentially billions of people worldwide unemployed and unemployable because they will lack the increasingly sophisticated skills necessary to participate in the fourth industrial revolution. Harari calls this group of people, rather chillingly, the useless class. Professor Satgar has a similar view, though he comes at it from the politically opposite perspective. He thinks we place far too much moral weight as a society on the idea that if you're not working, you're not contributing to society. He says that should be a really outdated notion, a kind of vestigial remnant of industrial societies and the Protestant work ethic. Here's his take in a nutshell. We've got to keep in mind that if you look at full employment based on welfare systems, etc., that happened in the context of industrialization. And increasingly, that wave of industrialization is in its winter, if you like. Most of it is happening in China. And that doesn't mean that manufacturing doesn't have a place in societies. But I think the old style industrial development that we've had in largely the 20th century is over. You're going to be moving towards more smart based manufacturing approaches. Linked to this, of course, is digital technology and the fact that this is also having a displacement effect. I mean, right now, maybe there's a bit of a hyperbole around it uh, that, you know, we are going to have fully automated workplaces, etc. I mean, that's the techno-utopia of all of this. But uh, there is a truth in this, that the more and more we automate processes, etc., there are going to be impacts. So you're seeing it, for example, right now in the banking sector in South Africa. The more and more the banking sector automates, the less and less labor is utilized. So there's a very, very serious paradigmatic question we have to ask, is how do you then sustain society? In other words, we have to start planning for a world without many jobs, a world in particular where low-skilled jobs are hard to come by because they've all been automated. In such a society, the thinking goes, it will become absolutely imperative to pay basic income grants. But let's be clear, a society in which relatively few people work is not necessarily a recipe for social happiness, even if those people have money. Many people have pointed out that work is critical for a sense of purpose and meaning and social interaction and often mental health. Paying people money for doing nothing might mean they're kept from starvation, but would they be content? And this isn't a trivial question. It's quite a fundamental one. We know from South African society that widespread unemployment leads to a host of other issues, including rampant domestic violence. How sure can we be that sustaining people economically in joblessness wouldn't also sustain the same social issues? Well, Professor Satgar says we have to start reimagining our society and our place in it. It, it, it forces us to ask very deep questions about how you live in a society, what does it mean to be a citizen in a society, what does it mean to have a stake in a society. He points out that it's not like economic growth and low unemployment guarantee widespread happiness as it is. We're constantly in this vortex of work and more work on this high-speed treadmill. And this is just at one level. At another level, our societies have also speeded up 
And you are seeing this in various indicators. You know, if you look at the happiness index and, and there's, there's great data on this, even in the context of wealthy, affluent societies. I mean, the United States since the 50s till now is a deeply unhappy society. Okay, so you can have all the material prosperity and you can have all the kind of material wealth and abundance as a society. It doesn't mean that you are becoming, if you like, uh, a less alienated society, a happier society. No, the indicators are showing the opposite, actually. So, so we have a very interesting moment that we have to grapple with. You might be listening to this and thinking, we'll deal with robots taking all the jobs when we get there. Right now, the point is, South Africa cannot afford to give everyone free money. And there are South African economists who say the same thing. But if you focus less on the bottom line and more on the poverty line, ask yourself this, how long can a society avoid a revolution when potentially millions of people will now live and die without ever seeing a paycheck. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohamed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis, with original music and sound mix by Bernard Kotze, editing by Tevya Turok-Shapiro, and additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to the Daily Mavericks newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram.